today's episode, Guy Miller talks to Mark Job, the president of Moody Bible Institute and author of Unstuck, Out of Your Cave, Into Your Call. He is also the founding pastor of New Life Community Church, a Chicago-based ministry with 28 locations and over 7,000 people calling it their spiritual home. So it's great to have Mark Job, who, who is a friend of ours all the way from USA, Mark, great to see you. You and Dee are much loved by the Commission family, and we're so grateful. You lead not only, oh, you're part of a church leadership team there in Chicago, but you're now leading Moody uh, Bible Institute, a very famous uh, historic uh, Bible, Bible Center of Training. And uh, we'd love to just catch up with your news and uh, maybe just to start the ball rolling Tell us a little bit about how you've moved from church leadership into that important role of leading a Bible institute. Well, thank you. Let me first of all say, Guy, I remember with great affection the time that I was able to spend with you and Heather and the leaders of commission down in uh, Exeter. um, Had an extraordinary time and loved the ethos, the heart, the vision of that group. I felt a kindred spirit to you. So I want to say uh, it's great to reconnect. Dee and I, we've been part of what we call New Life Community Church since its inception over 30 years ago. Small uh, little church that grew into, well, a multi-campus church of 27 different locations in Chicago, 41 worship services. And then we started to plant overseas as well. And so we were happy, invested, growing. But, you know, a couple of years ago, this uh, seed was deposited in my heart about transition and the next generation of leaders. And I thought, hey, I got 40 years to go strong. So I'm not thinking really about that much. But it was something that I couldn't shake. I felt the Holy Spirit was just pushing me in that area. And so I started asking myself, if I were to get hit by a truck tomorrow, what gaps would I leave? And so I started to fill those gaps with key leaders so that this could really function without me being present, Uh, giving up some of my preaching. I was preaching probably 95% of the times I started to transition to younger leaders, raising up the next generation. Anyways, About three years ago, when this was all in place and I was feeling, not that I was leaving, I never had the thought of leaving, but I got a call from Moody Bible Institute, which is a historic ministry in the heart of the city of Chicago, with a great connection, by the way, historic connection with Westminster. Moody and Campbell were friends together, and uh, they had a cross-the-pond connection, so it's great to make that historic connection here. They called me and asked if I would consider, to be honest, I wasn't really open to it. Um, I kept telling them, no, I I don't think I would. But to make a long story short, after fasting and prayer, it came down to the bottom line. And I told them this, I would be willing to step into the presidency of Moody if you allow me to continue to engage in church ministry as a pastor. I figured for sure that would be a no, but they talked to the board and they said, we've never had a president do that, but we'll allow it. So I'm the president of Moody, which is a Bible college with 1,500 students downtown. We have an aviation school in Spokane. We have a radio ministry with 75 radio stations, 1.3 
million listeners, and then a publishing uh, organization that puts out 3.5 million books a year. So it's quite an operation in the heart of the city, been around for 135 years, and we have about 3,000 students currently in a degree program. It's a privilege to lead it, but my heart is still in church planting and evangelism. So I still preach every other week. I continue to be involved with the leadership of uh, New Life. And so it's been quite a fun journey. And how do you, uh, Mark, bridge that? The pioneering type spirit where you take a young leader who wants to go and plant a church or begin a ministry and the more cerebral pastor teacher gift which says, actually, I want to go to do some serious study. I want to. I want to have some training. Who are you appealing to in terms of Moody? Who Who are you looking for? Who you think this This is our. This is who we want to catch up in our training programs. That's a good question. As a pastor, I realize that one of our great challenges is raising the next generation of leaders. I think every pastor that you talk to, when you talk about future vision, they'll say our greatest challenge. We have more opportunities than we can handle. Our greatest challenge is equipped, prepared leaders to step up full of faith, Bible knowledge, being spirit-led, godly character, willing to tackle hell with the squirt gun type of attitude. And so what attracted me to Moody was the fact that I'm training really uh, primarily 18 to 24 year olds, college age kids. Moody's an accredited college. Uh, but no matter what major you choose, you're going to get 40 hours of Bible. That's what I hope to bring to Moody is this is an academic school, but it was founded really to be a hands-on school. So we're in the heart of the city of Chicago on purpose because all of the students are sent out every week to have to do hands-on ministry of some sort. So they're in deep theology classes, but they're also on the street feeding the homeless, helping with the church, uh, doing an after-school program, leading worship somewhere. That was the heart of D.L. Moody. I mean, he, he didn't have more than a sixth grade education, but he turned the world upside down with a fire and a passion for souls. So it's amazing that a guy that didn't have more than a sixth grade education started really a Bible school that's turned out to be a seminary so we hope to marry both together. And uh, that's that's at least our heart. It's, it's challenging, but that's our heart. And where will most of the 3,000 go at the end of the training? Will some of them go back into perhaps what we might call secular work or will majority go on to join a church in terms of leadership or pioneering church planting? What we like to say is we want to train people to live on mission for Jesus, regardless of where you get your paycheck from. And so there'll be a, a number that will go into traditional, what we call, quote unquote, vocational ministry, pastors, youth pastors, worship leaders, Christian education, non-for-profit. But we also are training students to live on mission and to go into whatever field God has called them to as long as they're making disciples. And Moody has degrees in communication and education and counseling and teaching and English as a second language besides the more traditional vocational sort of ministry. So that's our heart. So you'll have students go all over the world straight into ministry and some that will go straight into 
quote-unquote secular work. And tell me then, Mark, in terms of this last year has been very, very difficult for all uh, church leaders, well, for everybody, but church leaders have found it particularly hard. What for you have been some of the highlights and, and maybe some of the challenges? And what are some of the things that you're thinking, this is good, we don't want to lose this lesson as we come out of lockdown, we don't want to lose something of what we've learned in this last year? Well, let me say this for the pastors and leaders that are listening if you're tired, if you're a little bit exhausted, if you've been disoriented, welcome to the crowd because it has been a challenging year for almost everybody. And I like to say, you know, we were hit with not just a crisis, we were hit with a multifaceted crisis. It started with the pandemic, which just disrupted everybody's life. But then it led to an economic recession that had everybody on edge, a lot of people unemployed. It led to some, at least here in the US, I think it spilled over to a lot of different places, racial unrest and tension like we haven't seen before. Also, in the U.S., there was a, a political polarization to a new level. I've never seen it polarized. And so the church obviously lives in a world that was, was in the middle of multiple, multiple crises, one on top of the other. And for pastors in particular, uh, who are used to gathering their congregation together and ministering, they had the added challenge of not being able to meet in person like they normally meet. So we're in the middle of turbulent crisis, but unable to meet. You know, Guy, one of the passages that, that the Lord gave me, I felt drew me to through the Holy Spirit early on in the crisis was the story of Joseph. God gave Joseph a dream when he was 17 years old. It was a big dream, but his spiritual legs and character and abilities weren't mature enough to handle the weight of this big dream. And so God gave them another gift, not just the dream. God gave them the gift of crisis. Think about it, guy. He gives them a dream. Joseph has this big dream that he's going to influence the world. And then God immediately throws him into a crisis. And it seems like it sabotages his dream. But really, it's what Joseph needed to prepare to lead with influence. He's in Potiphar's house and he learns administration. He's betrayed by his brothers. He's in prison and he learns that he has the ability to decipher dreams. And about the time he has been through all this crisis of maturity, he's broken down. Then God launches him from the prison to the palace to his most influential time in life. I believe that God is doing that with the church as well. I believe that God is using crisis to teach us and prepare us for, I believe, what will be our most influential time in the future. Now, he's got to break us down. We have to learn humility. We have to learn not to depend on certain things that we depended on before. Early on, I, I kind of understood, okay, God, you're taking us into crisis, but this crisis is a training time. God, let me share with you one of the things that happened in Chicago. So Chicago, like New York, was hit big time. And we're in the heart of Chicago. Like we're not on the outskirts of Chicago. We're like right in the heart of Chicago. And when this crisis hit, and we work in some immigrant community, we work in some high-end communities where houses are, you know, $1.5 million. 
And then we work in communities where people don't speak English and are mainly migrant, especially Mexican. And so one of our communities that we were working in called Little Village, it's primarily a Mexican community. Uh, there were two ladies there, a mother and a daughter, that for about a decade had been feeding maybe about 100 people a week. You know, they would go to uh, restaurants, gather leftover food, put it in an old van, and they would go to the homes of seniors and single mothers. And they barely speak English, but this was their ministry. Well, when the pandemic hit, one of the things that surfaced is so many people needed food because they were being laid off from their jobs. And so they were overwhelmed by the demand. And so they came to our two of our pastors, my son, who's 27 years old, and one of the other pastors who leads our non-for-profit. And they said, hey, we're overwhelmed. 500 people want food. And so they came together, my son and and, and the other pastor said, what if we fed a thousand people a week? Well, they were overwhelmed. Where would we get the food? How would that happen? Well, guy, let me tell you, that went from feeding a thousand to two thousand to five thousand to ten thousand to fifteen thousand to twenty thousand. And currently we've been feeding between twenty five to thirty thousand people a week. That's one percent of the city of Chicago. Because the city is 3 million people, greater Chicago is 10 million. We became the greatest food distribution. We fed 1.5 million people over the last 13 months. We become the greatest food distribution in the state of Illinois because the people of God said, here's a need. How do we meet it? And we can't just depend on being a service inside of our four walls. This is an extraordinary time to be followers of Jesus because there's so many people that are hurting, full of anxiety, upset, lonely, disengaged. The church is at its best when we're in the midst of crisis. People are hurting all over the world. And this is it, the, the problem is that we've been disrupted in the way we're used to gathering people on Sunday and ministering to people in a service. But there have been extraordinary opportunities outside of the four walls of the church. In fact, through our food distribution, it led to a secular organization donating a building to us so that we could have a, a permanent food distribution. We're doing this in Jesus' name. I awoke to the fact that God was doing something. I was on a Saturday, I still remember it, and our church building that normally has about 1,700 people in on for services, that's one of our main locations, I knew it was going to be empty the next day. And I'm in a, on Saturday with a, uh, probably 150 volunteers putting boxes of food into people's cars praying for them, asking how they're doing spiritually, ministering to them. And I'm kind of complaining to God that the sanctuary is going to be closed. But the Lord opened up my eyes and said, look around. I saw 800 cars waiting in line, 300 people standing on the sidewalk, our people ministering and praying for them. And I realized we had just ministered to 4,000 people on a Saturday in our parking lot, most of whom are non-believers, double the amount that we would minister to on Sunday. And the Lord said, hey, open up your eyes. I'm working. It's just going to be different than what our normal work is. And I realized there's tons of opportunities and the church has always been resilient if we can break out of some of our boxes.
That's amazing, Mark. I mean, there's such an inspiring, inspiring story. It has been a Joseph-like experience for the church. It does feel like we've lived with great promises from God, things we've believed about the church, we've believed about the gospel, about the nations, and yet we seem to have then been into prison or kept under by this COVID horrible pandemic. And then we're coming out of it. We're hearing stories like you just shared. I mean, that's just an extraordinary story of how God's been preparing his people for such a time as this, you know, to use Queen Esther's language, we've come to the kingdom for such a time as this. Can you comment a little bit more Perhaps because George Floyd and Black Lives Matter has been such high profile here in the UK, can you comment a little bit about how God's preparing his church to be a mediator of bringing together diversity under one roof and being a blessing? Showing in a way the world the way forward on this on this very sensitive yes. issue? You know, Chicago is very, very uh divided politically. It's very, very multiracial. It's about a third white, a third black, a third Hispanic and Asian. So the city is very, very multiracial. And the church that I pastor, the location that I'm at is probably 70% non-white, 30% white, 70% non-white. So it's a very multicultural setting. And Chicago does not have the reputation. I mean, it has been in the past years, it was a very segregated, divided, a city made up of immigrants, but there's been a lot of racial tension in Chicago. When, when I saw the images of George Floyd, there had been several other incidents that had been happened. My heart was so tired and so broken. I remember walking in, I think it was a Wednesday, walking into our sanctuary, kind of discouraged and overwhelmed by all this tension that was happening. And there I saw our African-American worship leader leading our Hispanic, Asian, and white all on stage together. And they were interceding for the city, praying for peace, asking that God would break down bridges. I just happened to walk into it and they're worshiping God, praying out loud, just praying over the city. And I paused, I soaked it in. And I think God just let me know, hey, there's hope because the church should model to the world what the kingdom of God is like. So it has been an extremely intense time for churches all across the world. The racial divide, and let me just let me just speak to the pastors here that are pastoring in different places. At least here in America, they say that 30% of pastors have thought about transitioning, leaving, quitting. 30%, almost 30%, 29% of the pastors, in part because it has been so difficult to shepherd through this time. You either said too much about race or not enough about race. You mentioned Black Lives Matter or you didn't mention it enough. You told people how to vote or you didn't tell people how to vote. You required masks and so you're shutting down the praise of God or you didn't require it enough so people aren't safe and you're killing people. I mean, pastors were in the middle of a lot of vortex of complaints. And so it was very, very, very difficult to navigate that. I think that what happened a lot with the race thing is it was politicized. And I believe that the church functions best when we're not married to politics. The church functions best when we are the church, people of the kingdom, 
dealing with sins like racism that we should be dealing with, not in a political way, but in a spiritual way. And so we had candid conversations. My son, who uh, leads one of our main locations, I, I work with him. He did an interview that next Sunday with one of our black pastors and one of our um, one of our other pastors that's working right in the middle of a divided neighborhood. And they said, let's, this is on a Sunday morning. He said, let's just talk about our response as kingdom of God people. And so we got into open conversation about let's let's talk about how the church responds to this. We had some great conversations getting our black and white and Hispanic uh, pastors and leaders together to talk about this, to tackle it from a spiritual perspective, repenting of things that we need to repent of, but also speaking hope uh, to things that we need to speak hope into. For example, let me give you one story, Guy. Here in Chicago, during the height of racial tension, there was rioting that broke out in the streets. You may have seen it on the news, but Chicago was up for grabs. I mean, it, there was the police could not. There was rioting in the streets. There was breaking of windows. The mayor closed down the downtown, so it spilled over to the side neighborhoods. And it was just a city out of control. Well, one of the neighborhoods that we minister in is a Hispanic community, which has a lot of stores and so forth. And we've planted two churches there about a mile apart from each other because there's uh, gangs. There's two main gangs there. And so we, we planted them a mile apart because we couldn't get certain youth to go to our church because it was a gang line. And so we have two churches. Well, when the riots broke out, it was very racial. A group of African-American uh, young people drove into that Hispanic neighborhood. They went to a shoe store and they got out. They broke the windows and were robbing things. Well, these two gangs saw that it was happening and ran after the, this, and then they became defenders of the community against uh, looters, but it became racial. So they started throwing rocks at any African-American that was coming in. So they were defending their neighborhood, but it also became very racial. So these two communities, African-American gang heard about this, and they were about to start a major gang warfare. I mean, it was massive. They came in and started shooting at each other. Our pastors who've been working in that community actually held a private meeting between the top black gang leaders, the top uh, Hispanic gang leaders, and brought them together and said, is this the time that brown and black should be shooting at each other? We should be coming together for good causes. And so it was our pastors speaking to them, walking with them, that actually helped to organize a march down through the streets for peace of black and Hispanic that would be shooting each other. But because we had credibility working already, because already in that neighborhood, uh, we've been first responders at shootings. We're, we have after school pro, uh, programs that happen on a regular basis. We're the ones that show up before the police show up to a shooting incident and mediate with the family and minister to the family. But because we are already present, it's the ministry of presence. Already sowing seeds, had credibility. We were able to avert a major disaster, a bloodbath. Uh, and you won't hear it on the news, but it was pastors. 
people of God, reconcilers. We were ministering so powerfully in that area. Let me tell you that the mayor of Chicago came down to our food distribution and spent two hours working in our food line. And when incidents pop up, the mayor's texting now our pastors asking for prayer and asking if we could mediate. And I love it when the city, a secular city, reaches out to the church for solutions. We've had the governor down in our little village area. We've had the mayor of Chicago. I prayed with the police superintendent in the city of Chicago. Why? We're just the people of God doing work in the city that we love and doing it in Jesus' name. That's wonderful. So some tremendous... um stories already in terms of how God is using what we might say the enemy meant for evil in terms of this horrible pandemic. You've talked about the power of uh, the, the, the community of grace reaching the poorest. You've talked about the power of the church building unity across the breaking down the dividing walls of hostility, as Paul would call them. What about the internet and the social media platforms and online churches, what have been the pluses or perhaps some of the frustrations in that whole world? Everyone in ministry, we have, we're scattered throughout mainly metropolitan Chicago and our congregations, they're all called New Life. We function as almost like a multi-site church, but all of the, but we have live teaching at all of these locations. So There's 27 locations, 41 worship services, a combined attendance of a little over 7,000 people that come together. But we do the same message. We're on the same page together. However, technologically, the larger locations already had Internet services and cameras and so forth. But a lot of the smaller locations weren't equipped, really. So uh, we had to pivot and try to help all of our smaller locations learn how to do uh, internet services and so forth. And that was quite a, uh, I'm, I'm sure you had to do some of that as well. I'm sure that was quite a feat for some people. I would say this, when it comes to internet, I think that there's, there's certain things that have forever changed in the church. They were already changing, but what COVID just did is it accelerated change. Some people look at what has happened and they said, oh, look what it has done. No, those changes were already on the way. COVID has just accelerated certain changes. It's made them go faster. Instead of seven years, it took 12 months to do. Uh, we were already moving in this direction. And I would simply say this. In terms of internet, I would say that we can no longer afford to look at people that are joining online as a subcategory. We need to look at it as a legitimate way of people participating in our worship services. Uh, Stats here in the U.S. say that churches that have been gathered in person are about 30 to 50 percent lower in physical attendance right now. I mean, it's still opening up. But that Internet uh, attendance has doubled in most cases. And so I think it's opened up a phenomenal door of opportunity that we should not dismiss and simply say, let's get back to normal. I think that churches in the future, and there's already a lot of churches that are doing this, will have online ministry. We already had some, but we have online chaplains 
that their job is to pray for people, connect with people, just to minister online as people are joining our services, let them know how to get prayer requests, um, presenting the gospel, connecting them for baptism, all of those things that we would do at a normal service. I think that churches need to be more and more equipped to be able to minister to. The business world has known this for years. The more clicks lead to more bricks. Uh, in other words, the business world has known that it's not a competition between online and physical. The more online presence you have and the more people click, the more likely they are to join the brick and mortar as well. And I think it's true of the church. People don't just show up to go to church. People explore. They explore life and they explore uh, religious scene via online online before they go in person. And I believe that God is raising a generation of millennials and younger that are savvy and are going to be producing content, are going to be uh, helping people that are hurting because we have a world that's very hurting right now, looking for solutions. And oftentimes we can provide those solutions through online content as we minister to them. It's a huge open door that we should not close in the future. I mean, we've seen the benefits. I mean, as you say, we're, we're reaching people we've never reached before because of the power of the internet getting into homes. We've seen people getting saved or connecting for the very first time. And I think most of our pastors are talking about a hybrid uh, way of moving forward out of the pandemic so that we maintain some online presence and meetings that are online prayer meetings, for instance, have been incredibly successful. Uh, yet the, the power of physicality, of being together around the Lord's table, of laying hands on one another, of greetings, of all those things which we really have missed. I wonder, is, is there, have there been things that you and your pastors have said and would want to say to the commission leaders, we think we might well leave this behind. It's been, it's been something of, it's been a blessing, but actually with this bus stopping at the station, people are getting off. This is a thing, perhaps this is a time to make some changes in this area, as well as to take on board some of the new challenges of, of what it means to be in more online community. I think it's less what we're leaving behind and more what we're engaging in. In other words, I think that our services, our worship, our children's ministry, small groups, all that in-person thing that was put on pause for a moment. All those things have a place. We should re-engage in them. But I think it's what we're adding. I, I do think a mindset, though, what uh, more mindset than anything, I do think a mindset that exclusively views church as a Sunday morning experience needs to be left behind. Church has always been the people of God gathered on Sunday or spread throughout the week. But that idea that church is an hour and a half on Sunday morning, and if that's eliminated, we don't have church, that needs to be left behind. Uh, that mentality, we are a community of people uh, during persecution, people weren't able to meet, but they were still the church. There's been many, many times where 
Sunday morning as we know it, the church has not been able to engage in. And if we just view it that way, then for a lot of people, they think, well, we couldn't have church. But for people that viewed the church beyond the Sunday morning experience, they realize the church is alive and well and functioning, and moving, discipling people, leading people to Christ, ministering to people just because we didn't, weren't able to have a Sunday morning service is normal. So that mentality needs to be left behind. I do think that there's a couple of areas that we have learned. Joshua, when they were crossing uh, the Jordan to go to the promised land, if you remember the story, Guy, the, the ark, the priest with the ark went out and they stood in the middle of the river. And then the people crossed. And I don't know if you remember this, but uh, Joshua then said, God said to them, go gather stones from right where the priests were standing. There's something significant about it. It was the place where God's presence was most manifest and the challenge was the biggest. These were stones of remembrance. These were lessons. The lessons learned were the challenge is the greatest and the presence of God is the strongest. Those are the lessons that we can never forget. So they took those stones, big stones, these were not pebbles, and they put them at the entrance of the camp. Why? Because they were about to tackle Jericho. And they had to, they needed to remember, hey, this is what we learned when the problem was the greatest, but the presence of God was the strongest. Do not forget those lessons. But as I've been thinking, there's a couple of things that, that I would encourage pastors to focus on during this time. I think we need to double down. Here, here's number one. I think we need to double down on relational disciple-making culture. We need to double down. Our main calling is to make disciples of Jesus. And so we can't depend on a service on Sunday morning to make disciples. We have to have every believer engaged in disciple-making. We have to have the church, even if it was banned to meet on Sunday morning that we would explode with growth because every disciple carries the DNA of disciple making. That means our members need to know how to lead someone to Christ, teach them the basics of following Jesus, ground them in the word, make disciples and baptize them. I think double down on relational disciple making culture, not just our big, um, our, our, our big Sunday morning experience. Number two, I think there needs to be a renewed emphasis on prayer, pastoral care, and interpersonal connection. You, you cannot, the, the spiritual fire that comes from a renewed emphasis on prayer and fasting and connection together, uh, that is huge. There were people shut down uh, in homes that couldn't connect, but there were people, our prayer warriors, that could pray and call out. I think that that prayer that connects people together, you experience it via Zoom, I think that needs to be heightened. In other words, our prayer movement needs to be stoked. We need to realize that prayer and, and not just private prayer, but prayer connecting to others and ministering to people in prayer, that needs to be stoked. Number three, I think we need to realize that Gen Z and millennials, there is an openness among them, there is a divide. Those that are very anti-church because of the airs of sexuality and race and so forth, then we'll look at the church and say, you dropped the ball or you're archaic. But there are a lot of Gen Z's and millennials that are, uh, that are alone, 
isolated, afraid, have suicidal ideations. When they do studies on who has been hit hardest in this pandemic, it's the 18 to 23-year-olds that have suffered most anxiety, that have felt most alone, that are wondering about their purpose, that have really, really struggled. And some of them are, are leaning into God. And I think just like what happened in the 60s with the cultural revolution, the Jesus movement was birthed in the midst of it. Also, we have an extraordinary opportunity to minister. I gave an altar call just a couple uh, weeks ago. There was almost 10 people that came forward to give their life to Christ. And the pastor was telling me, he said, what was interesting is that they were all between 18 to 26 year olds. They're giving their life. So do not miss the moment. Sometimes we look at millennials as anti-church because their views are sexuality and gender fluidity on um, some of the extreme views that they have towards the church. I think you're going to see a divide, people becoming very anti-church, but I think you're going to have millennials that are very, very much looking for what the church offers, hope in Jesus, community, healing, uh, significance, a cause, a purpose to live for. So let's not miss that opportunity. Number four, remember that political and ideological Ideological churches will lose influence with the unchurched. Churches that align themselves with political parties and join in and make that their thing, they may have a they may have a moment of attraction, but long term they will lose influence and power. Anytime the church harnesses itself to politics, just study church history. Anytime the church aligns itself with a political party or too close with political powers, it always ends up bad for the church. And so there are churches that have done that during this time. And you see a, maybe a, 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 an excitement at the beginning, but in the end, they will lose influence and power. We stand as a kingdom unto our own. King Jesus is our ruler. And although we embrace issues that are aligned with the kingdom, we do not align ourselves with the political party. And number five, I would say, we need to look for ways, find ways to become essential to our local, the local communities that we serve. We have had more opportunities with our government, our city. Uh, we have had more opportunity with agencies, not because these places and people uh, affirm our theology, but it's because we're meeting needs that they don't know how to meet. The church, Jesus said, you are a city on a hill that they may see your good works and glorify your father who is in heaven. Hospitals were birthed out of the church. Uh, schools were birthed out of the church. Uh, the church has always been a leading agent in meeting the needs in our society. And so I think we need to roll up our sleeves and learn how to be essential to our society, meeting needs in Jesus' name, doing out of love and compassion, mobilized by volunteers so that we are essential, so that people cannot ignore us because of our good works. And they, they have to pause and ask, what is the message that drives these people? Yeah, I mean, they are superb point, absolutely breathtaking points. Every one of them deserves a sermon on its own. Just drill down for me a little bit to help our pastors. When we talk about millennials and Gen Z in terms of sexuality, the fluidity of non-binary sexuality, the confusion of that younger generation, most pastors, white, rural 
pastors perhaps in the commission family might feel a little bit like a, a Bambi gazelle in the midst of a pride of lions, terrified to open their mouths or wander out in case they get jumped on in terms of saying the wrong... I mean, here it's so politicised in terms of you can't say this, you can't say this, you can't say this. I think the temptation would be coming out of lockdown for pastors to be on the back foot and to maybe not even go there. Some encouragement from you in terms of how, to, how, how we reach that generation. What, what, what are the things we should be saying, reading to help us to, to, to engage properly? This will be one of the de defining battlefronts. It, it, it is there. 20 years ago, I planted a church in the neighborhood in Chicago that was the highest concentration of gays and lesbians in the entire state of Illinois. This is before all of the gender fluidity. This is before, but it was very. So I had a lot of experience already at uh, pastoring in a community where I was getting emails every week. Are you inclusive? Where do you stand? And so I developed an approach. And let me just say a couple of things. Number one. Lead with what you're for, not with what you're against. We're for wholeness. We're for healing. We're for redemption. We're for forgiveness. Uh, we're for reconciliation that comes through Jesus Christ. So our goal is not to make non-Christians embrace a Christian morality. Our goal is to bring people to the feet of Jesus and let Jesus sanctify and heal the brokenness that exists in our sexuality. I think that that sort of should be the disposition. We're bringing people to Jesus and, and, and it is in the presence of Jesus that they begin to be transformed. Just like someone that's living with his girlfriend or someone that, you know, there, there's been brokenness all over. We all have legitimate desires that we try to fulfill in illegitimate ways. The other thing I would say is our pastors need to get educated on these areas because there's language now. It, it keeps evolving and it's just confusing the, you know, pansexual and asexual and gender fluidity. And it gets so confusing what people are talking about. I would recommend a book called Holy Sexuality by Christopher Yuan. He happens to be a adjunct professor at Moody. He was saved, converted out of a gay lifestyle, but he teaches a good perspective on biblical sexuality. I also believe that all of our leaders need to be trained in this area. Even at Moody, as we're going into the future, we have a course on holy sexual uh, on sexuality. But I'm looking at having all of our freshmen have a required course on just a biblical view of sexuality because there's so much confusion and we're getting more and more, we're getting more and more young people raised in evangelical churches that are the youth of evangelical churches that are very, very confused about sexuality and very pressured into it. And so, so for pastors, it's about posture, posture yourself with grace, with love, bringing people to Jesus but also embracing a biblical sexuality. We need to be clear about what the Bible teaches. We need to be clear about God's, uh, God's design for sexuality and not compromise on our, on our stance when it comes to biblical sexuality. 
but our face to the world needs to be full of love and grace. And our commitment internally needs to be super clear as to where we stand because there's more and more questions that will arise around this area. It's really uh, great to speak to someone who is not just a, a leader, but a practitioner in this. And, and I love the stories. I love the, the way in which you can immediately connect with a book that can really help and serve us. In this last year, we're also dealing, Mark, key leaders that are, are, are having revelations made about them. Some of them, like Ravi, who is you know, has passed on, but stories are coming to the fore, high-profile worship leaders, leaders of movements being exposed uh, for things that have remained hidden for quite a few years. I wonder if you could just comment again, speaking, as it were, to the leaders of our churches and the, the leadership teams within our churches what, what would you want to say to them in terms of their leadership gift? And how, how do they keep grounded at a time like this where there is so much pressure because of social media, because of the world around us that wants to ask you how many people you've got coming to your service or how many people you've seen saved or how many people follow you on a Instagram or on a, on a Twitter or whatever it might be. Can you speak to our leaders in terms of how to keep the basics right and to keep grounded in times like this? Yeah, absolutely. So let me say this first of all. This is nothing new. We see it more exposed than we have in the past because of social media and news travels rapidly. I'm in Chicago and I could name some very high profile leaders in Chicago that are no longer in ministry because of uh, areas in their life that have stepped them out. So I have a few thoughts about that. Number one, the response that you and I should have anytime we hear that a leader fell should not be, how could they? Casting judgment and throwing stones. Our response should be getting on our knees in humility, praying for them and saying, oh Lord, I know how they could because I have a heart that could easily go astray if not for the grace of God. So first of all, let me say, let's not join in and being the stone throwers. Because you and I have the same sort of fallen nature, redeemed by Jesus, the same sort of uh, stuff could happen in our lives if we don't guard ourselves carefully, guard our walk carefully. So our disposition should be one of grace towards fallen leaders, our hope should be one of restoration and repair. This is not a great time to jump on the bandwagon of throwing stones at people. So as leaders, that should be our disposition. Number two, I do believe that there is a need for leaders to guard their walk more than ever before. You know, what comes to my mind is Moses. Uh, Moses had a, has a calling to go, you know, he's been a shepherd and he has a burning bush experience. God calls him to set his people free. He gathers his wife and his two boys. He's on the road. Um, he stops at a, at a little motel. And there the Bible says, and God was about to kill him. And if you don't remember that kind of strange story in the beginning of Exodus. And, um, and then Miriam, his wife, goes and rescues him by, by circumcising his boy. Uh, but God was about to kill him. 
It's a very strange passage because you think, God, why did you call him and then go try to kill him? I believe that Moses had unfinished business in his life. The, the closer you get to your call and the closer you move into what God has called you to do, the higher the expectation of holiness and the higher the demand on our life. God has a different expectation. There, there's expectation for every follower of Jesus, but there's a higher requirement for elders than there are for, say, a new baby Christian. There's an expectation that's there. And Moses had left some business unfinished. He should have obeyed in circumcising his boys, but he hadn't. And it fell into the lap of his wife to do it. And it almost kept him from fulfilling his call because he had an area of disobedience in his life. Leaders don't just fall. They don't go from one day to another and just fall. They weren't walking in integrity and holiness and just fall. It never happens that way. It is a gradual compromise of the mind, hidden secrets, an excusing of giving into the deceitfulness of sin. And eventually we find out about it in a public way but I can guarantee you it's not a, oh, all of a sudden I fell. No, no, that's not the way it works. It is a gradual departing from walking close with Jesus, a gradual openness to compromise in our life. Deal with whatever God is convicting you about now. That's really great. And we're coming to the end of our time together, Mark. So maybe just a personal reflection from you as we as we draw this to a close how do you i mean in many ways you you're carrying a huge amount of responsibility in the world's eyes you would be the top of of a pyramid you would be you know in charge of moody a, a key leader in the city of chicago church leader voice have, have, have high profile how do you keep it down to earth your walk with Jesus? What what are your disciplines that just keep you fresh and loving your wife, loving your kids, loving your church, not going cynical, and uh, just keeping your intimacy in terms of your walk with the Holy Spirit? How do you, how do, you do that on a day-to-day basis? Well, it may sound very simplistic, and a lot of these things are simple, but there you go back. I do what I did this morning. I get up, Usually I'm the first one in my household that gets up and I spend time praying through the Lord's Prayer. Our Father who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Yeah, I worship you. Thy kingdom come and I pray circles. I pray for my heart. I pray for my marriage. I pray for my children. I pray for my leaders. I pray for my city. I pray for the world. Thy kingdom come. Thy will be done. And I work my way through the Lord's Prayer just just with my father speaking, walking. I like to walk and pray, by the way. It keeps me a little bit more awake with a cup of coffee in my hand in the morning. I, I, that's how I like to pray. I always get into the word. I try not to mix a sermon prep with just, Lord, what are you saying to me? What are you saying? How can I respond to that? I take time to journal. I want to be honest and talk about what God is doing. What am I thinking? What am I learning? And so I take the time to process that, what's happening in my life. I also take time to remind myself of my bigger, my broader calling. I write three numbers at my at the top of my to-do list every day. I, I make a list because I bring it to mind. But I write three numbers. I write 13 to remind myself that whatever I do, If I don't have love, it's worth nothing. First Corinthians chapter 13, you know, you could do great things, 
If you have love, it's it's nothing. So love God and love people above other things. I write that number. I write 2XP, double portion. I've been praying by, that by the year uh, 2030, the next decade, that Moody will have a double a number of in its in its broadcast radio and its publishing and the number of students. So it's a big thing. But I've been praying for a double portion of impact. That's what I'm praying. So I remind myself of that. And then I write at the end, 1% because of the church end, We've been praying that we would impact 1% of the city of Chicago. And so I write those three numbers. It reminds me of my heart and it reminds me of some of my calling that I'm engaged in. The other thing that I would say is oftentimes your marriage and your relationship with people close to you are the dashboard that signals problems in your heart. It shows up in your marriage. It shows up in your relational quality and the people that are around you. So you may deceive yourself about your own heart, but I think that in the the relationships that are closest to you, it shows up. And so, um, and I would encourage every pastor to really engage in uh, courting their wife and uh, carving out time for their marriage and seeking to pray at night when they can and this honest engagement in their relationship uh, uh, with their wife and being intentional about a date night or date day. Um, D and I uh, seek to do that on a regular basis. And so I would look at the dashboards in your life and and see, are there any red lights there? And if they are, pay attention to them and deal with them immediately. One last thing I would say, we've engaged for years in seasons of fasting and prayer, usually at the beginning of the year and throughout the year, usually at the beginning of the year, 21 days of fasting and prayer. Those are just times to set aside really to come before the Lord, to seek him more intentionally. I think there's rhythms of pressing in to seek God as well that we need to be conscious of that are really good for my soul. Yeah. I mean, I love that uh, dashboard in terms of uh, marriage, Mark. I mean, Heather, it's a funny thing. I, I think in my early years as a Christian, praying with Heather was, I, I found it difficult, I, I guess, because you knew the stuff that was on the inside and you couldn't pray hypocritically. Uh, now we pray on a daily basis and it just is, it, it just keeps you in that sweet spot with your closest friend, with God. You feel like you, there's an honesty and an integrity. Mark, this has been a mine, a, a gold mine of uh, nuggets of wonderful, wonderful insights, help, truth. We really do thank God for you, Andy, uh, and I'm thrilled with the way God has blessed you and enlarged the place of your tent. May you know that continuing growing growth. May you see that double portion. We would pray for that. And I pray that our relationship, Chapel, Westminster Chapel and Moody, but actually you with the commission, I pray we get other opportunities where we can receive you, uh, hear you and be blessed by you. But thank you so much for giving up some time today. We love you and want to thank, thank God for all that you mean to us. Thank you, Guy, Heather, and all of Commission. Love your heart. Love what you're doing. And we definitely will continue to stay in touch and uh, keep that uh, Westminster and Moody connection alive a hundred and over a hundred years later. God bless you, brother. Yeah, bless you, mate. God bless you. Thank you for listening to the Adventure Together podcast. If you enjoyed it, don't forget to subscribe. 
find out more about commission visit www.commission.global